Hey everyone, and welcome to the Connection Place podcast, where we seek to connect with Jesus together in the place he longs to meet with us, his word. Today is the launch episode of the podcast, and as we are beginning on the first Sunday of Advent, I thought it fitting to start in the book of Luke and lead us through the story of the birth of Christ. Each Sunday of Advent will cover about half of a chapter, which will bring us all the way through from the prophecy of John the Baptist to Jesus' actual birth, as told in Luke chapters 1 and 2. So let's get started. Before we dive into the text, we need some context. Let's learn more about the author of this book. Luke is a doctor, a missionary companion of Paul, and a follower of Jesus who never actually met Jesus. I was surprised to learn, too, that he seems to be the only non-Jewish or Gentile author of a New Testament book. He wrote the book of Acts, which is actually considered a sequel or direct follow-on to the book of Luke. Luke provides us with the longest of the four Gospels, giving us the fullest portrait of Jesus' ministry. He points out in the preface that many other accounts exist using eyewitness reports from the early disciples. Those who were from the beginning were servants of the word. But after his own careful investigation, he decided to add his own account. And we can be sure his decision to do this is propelled by the Holy Spirit, who knits all these authors and stories together into one big story about God, which is, of course, the Bible. In writing this account, Luke is specifically writing to the most excellent Theophilus, who happens to also be a Gentile, as well as a new believer, and he's likely a person of status. And Luke's writing this so that Theophilus can be certain of the truth of everything he was taught. I have personally always loved the book of Luke because he's detailed, he's methodical, he's seeking the truth. And the inclusion of his account in the Gospels and the New Testament is an encouragement that what matters is not birth or background, but following Jesus. Not to mention, he and I happen to both be wordy people. Okay, now that we've got some context, let's actually read the scriptures together. Today, we'll be reading verses 1 through 38 in chapter 1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, 
a great crowd stood outside, praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Okay, wow. I just love this section of the word so much. 
There is so much happening here. As I'm reading scripture, one of the things I try to focus on apart from the context is what's actually happening. I don't try to figure out what God is saying to me or find the deeper meaning on the first pass. I just let myself zoom out and soak in the words just as they are. So, what's happening here in this first half of chapter 1? In a nutshell, the births of John the Baptist and Jesus the Savior are being foretold through the intersecting, supernatural, and miraculous stories of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. Another thing I like to make note of while I'm studying a passage of scripture are the people. Who is part of this story, and why are they there? So let's take note, literally, we can take notes, of the people involved in this passage. We've got Herod, the king of Judea at the time, Zechariah, a Jewish priest from the order of Abijah and soon-to-be father of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, wife of Zechariah, who is herself from the priestly line of Aaron, and soon-to-be mother of John the Baptist. Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, who comes to both Zechariah and Mary. John, the prophesied son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, though his actual birth and his title of John the Baptist both come later. For now, he's just a predestined John. In the background is also Zechariah's priestly order, as well as a general crowd of people. They were waiting for Zechariah outside the temple, and they witnessed what happened to him and Elizabeth. Then there's Mary, a young, lowly virgin woman, who is engaged to marry Joseph and is the chosen mother of Jesus. There's Joseph, who we don't actually meet yet, but we hear of him. He's engaged to Mary and, importantly, he's a descendant of King David. This matters because the promised Messiah is prophesied to come from the line of David. And then last, but of course not least, we have the Holy Trinity all showing up in this one passage. There's the Holy Spirit. Gabriel tells Mary that she will conceive by the Holy Spirit coming upon her. There's Jesus, the prophesied Son of the Most High, born through Mary, sent to save the people from their sins. And there's God the Father. He is all over the place, moving the pieces around exactly the way he wants them to facilitate these miraculous birth stories. In just 38 verses, we have a whole myriad of diverse people, an angel and the Trinity, all in the mix of God's divine plan to bring Emmanuel, God with us, down to earth in the human person of Jesus. Digging a little deeper into the diversity of this group, we have a Gentile doctor and truth seeker writing this letter based on what he's learned through thorough investigation. We have a king. We have an elderly priest and his wife who are to miraculously become parents. We have an angel. We have a young, not noteworthy woman and her fiance who are also to miraculously become parents. We have unborn babies, both fully human one fully divine and the savior of the world. And we have God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. I mean, seriously, that's a pretty wide representation of humanity here. I love what God is saying to us through this diversity and how connected the tapestry of humanity is when it comes to Jesus. 
God invites all of us to participate in his story. All right, so we have some contextual background and we know who the players are. Let's dig into the text. Here are some of my thoughts and questions as I read this passage. The text tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. There are other examples in scripture that allude to the same level of righteousness in other humans. See Job, Noah, and Abraham. But we also know there is only one who ever existed who was perfect and free from any sin. Jesus, of course. So the question I have every time I read wording like this is, does God really mean to say all here? Does God really mean that we have to obey all commandments all the time or else? It's important to remember in this example of Zechariah and Elizabeth that during this time period, many people believed that barrenness was a judgment or a punishment upon those who had sinned against God. Luke wants us to know for certain that this couple did not fall into that category. They were not barren because of something they did wrong. So when we read statements like this that include all or nothing wording, wording that might cause us as modern readers to believe that only perfection meets God's standard, we need to be careful not to take it so literally that we view God as punitive and cruel looking down from on high and judging every single mistake and mess up we make. Instead, let us remember that from the beginning, all the way from Genesis to now, God had a plan in place to cover us with his righteousness through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God literally brought heaven to earth in the person of Jesus for the sole purpose of bridging that sin gap between us and him. That is the gospel good news for us today and all of our days. Let's move on to the first encounter with Gabriel. Gabriel tells Zechariah not to be afraid because Zechariah is shaking with fear. I mean, who wouldn't be when face to face with an angel? Have y'all read how they are described in other parts of scripture? They sound literally terrifying to me if I'm honest. So anyway, he tells Zechariah not to be afraid and that they will have a son to be named John, they will have great joy and gladness, in fact many will rejoice at his birth, for John will be great in the eyes of the Lord, that John must never touch wine or alcoholic drinks. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will turn many Israelites to the Lord. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Let's pause to note that Gabriel is connecting some dots here, as Malachi 4, 6 promises that Elijah would turn the hearts of parents to their children. So basically, Gabriel's filling Z in that the purpose of John's life will be to encounter all kinds of people and point them to Jesus in a variety of ways. This whole exchange causes me to ask a few questions. What does it mean to be great in the eyes of the Lord? As we will come to see through John's life, it's not a glam life. He is asked to walk a difficult, wild road, to speak difficult and controversial things as he paves the way for Jesus. 
and eventually he's martyred. Indeed, scripture tells us elsewhere that we should count the cost of following Jesus before signing up for it. It's heavy stuff, and such food for thought as we encounter this upside-down kingdom in our own lives. I also wonder, why is it necessary that John doesn't drink alcohol? This is actually fitting for consecrated Nazarites, but digging deeper to modern-day application, it lends understanding to this idea that sometimes God is going to convict us to refrain from things that aren't restricted for others, to set us apart. And even though no one else may understand it, our best interest is to be obedient to God because he knows the point and purpose of it, and he knows what's best for us. When the angel appears to Zechariah, not only is he trembling and overwhelmed with fear, he's also doubting what he's hearing. Zechariah asks Gabriel a question. How can I be sure this will happen? It's interesting to me that Zechariah is clearly in the presence of a holy being, in a holy place, and he's fulfilling a holy position as a priest. And yet, he still doubts. Even the best of us, with the most faith, or those of us expected to have the most faith, can wonder if God is really going to do what he says he's going to do. But Gabriel responds by rebuking and silencing Zechariah. Why does he do this? I can't say for sure, and truthfully, my reaction is that his response is harsh. I know I've asked a question like that many times of God, and I'm glad God didn't press the mute button on me. But, thinking through it, I wonder if Zechariah is silenced here to show us that when we question God from a place of mistrust rather than seeking truth, correction and even silence, or perhaps in our modern times, stillness, are valuable tools to check our hearts and align them back with God, to help us remember and know that He is worthy of our trust, whether we feel it in the moment or not. So Zechariah finally comes out of the sanctuary, and the people can clearly see, through Zechariah's forced muteness, that something happened in there, and they figure he must have seen a vision, which, as we know, is not quite accurate, but Zechariah can't speak to correct them. But hey, he doesn't really need to because one, they got the gist, and also two, they really don't need to know right now exactly what's going on. It's a good reminder that sometimes we need to be okay with staying silent in the face of others' confusion or misunderstanding about what God is doing in our lives. We don't need to explain or justify ourselves and instead can just let the fruit of our lives speak for itself. Soon afterward, Elizabeth does indeed become pregnant, and she says this, How kind the Lord is. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Honestly, I just love this for her. I love seeing people get their heart's desire and knowing that it's God who did it. And I love how God uses Elizabeth's testimony not only for the bigger purpose of bringing John the Baptist forth, but also to encourage Mary in her purpose. Now look at all that we've already talked about, and we haven't even really gotten to the part about Jesus yet. It's pretty cool just how much treasure scripture contains. Here we are now, finally, to the part about Jesus' birth being foretold. So six months after Elizabeth becomes pregnant, 
Literally, John is already preparing the way for Jesus and he's not even born yet. But God sends Gabriel to see Mary in Nazareth. Let's compare and contrast for a minute. Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the Temple of Jerusalem, a place with a bunch of building projects and other marks of high society. By contrast, Nazareth was a lowly village. God is literally and metaphorically all over the map when it comes to reaching his people. Gabriel appears to Mary and he says, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. I mean, what a greeting. Who wouldn't want to be told that? Albeit the words are coming from an angel of God, so I guess it's understandable that Mary responds by being confused and disturbed and tries to think what he could possibly be talking about. Mainly this is because Mary is a young teenager, she's a woman, a Galilean, all of which equals little social standing and not much in the way of being favored. Gabriel must know what she's thinking and feeling because he, like with Zechariah, tells her not to be afraid. He goes on to say, She has found favor with God. She will conceive and give birth to a son to be named Jesus. He will be very great and called the Son of the Most High. The Lord himself will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Again, this is very important as the prophecies all connect the Messiah to the line of David. And Jesus will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will be without end. Mary asks Gabriel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. We see here that Mary, like Zechariah, has a question for Gabriel about what he just said. At first, I kind of want to shout in Zechariah's favor like, hey, what gives? But let's notice the difference between the two questions and the two situations. She is, firstly, not a priest, not in the temple. She's not old or wise in years. And she also is not asking how she can be sure this will happen, but is more asking about the logistics. It's not a question of disbelief in her heart, but a true wondering and confusion as to how God will accomplish this word in her life. So partly because Mary's question is not doubting in nature, Gabriel actually answers her question. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. So this means that Jesus will be holy and the Son of God. I say he partly answers Mary's question because, sure, I think Mary's lack of doubt was part of why Gabriel answered her question. But I also think the answer to Mary's question is super important for future readers of this text to understand. You see, we didn't need to know how Zechariah could be sure of God's word coming true. That part wasn't all that consequential to him or to us. But we do need to know exactly how the Son of God is going to be born into the world as both human being and holy divine. It is critically important, we know, that it wasn't by man's seed, but by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, how could we trust who Jesus really is? So Mary's question serves a super important purpose here, And the Holy Spirit, who guides us into all truth about Jesus, is making sure we all have the answer. In fact, it's my opinion and lived experience that this one small yet super significant part of scripture is, in a way, telling us the whole point of all scripture, and that is to teach us about this mysterious and magnanimous, 
and miraculous God to prove to us that even in the context of seeing and knowing only in part, which requires faith and belief and trust, even in this context, God still wants to be known by us in the ways our human minds can know him. God isn't hiding from us or keeping us at a distance. He's very much here with us and wants us to be here with him too. Gabriel further encourages Mary after answering the practical part of her question by telling her about Elizabeth, her relative, who is old and was barren but now is pregnant. He says, for the word of God will never fail, or, in other renderings, for nothing is impossible with God. This response goes above and beyond her question and meets the need of her heart to know that God is good and faithful. Not just in this moment now, but in the moments to come, Mary will be able to cling to this encouragement and truth. This prophecy about Jesus changes everything about Mary's life, and while yes, she will carry the Son of God and be known forever as a blessed and favored woman, that favor will also include deep and profound suffering. Knowing that God is with her, well, I speak from the deepest part of my heart when I say, not much can compare or take away from that. Mary wraps this section of the text by responding to Gabriel, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then Gabriel leaves. My heart just leaps at the courage and innocence of Mary here. She probably only has an inkling of what this will mean for her what she will get to experience, and how it will cost her. But she doesn't complain. She doesn't ask further questions. She doesn't try to negotiate. She just accepts and surrenders to God and embraces the plan he has for her life. I think we can all agree that this is probably not the attitude that we adopt for the more difficult plans God has for us. We all love the Jeremiah 29 11 promise of a future and a hope, and we often wish that following hard after God meant an easy life, but it rarely, if ever, means that. I often pray to God that I want to want what he has for me, because I'm too scared to pray that I actually want it when I know that sometimes I really don't. For Mary to pray, may everything you have said about me come true, is one of those loaded prayers that can make you wish you had never prayed it once it's answered. So I applaud Mary for her courage. And I do believe God has equipped Mary to carry this purpose in her life, just as he equips each one of us in our lives. All right, so that's all of my own original thoughts on the text. But I'd love to share something super cool that I learned while studying this. Are you ready for some interesting commentary? From the Cultural Background Study Bible by Zondervan, verse 9 tells us that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to perform his priestly duties in the temple. This was customary amongst the priests because there were so many priests. In fact, there were an estimated 18,000 priests and Levites. The Jewish people believed that God supervised the outcome of the Lot. Put all this together, and this means that this was very likely... Zechariah's only opportunity to perform this service in his lifetime. Talk about divine sovereignty. 
One more thing before we close out today's episode. Because this is an Advent series, we have to circle back around to the theme of the first Sunday of Advent, which is hope. So where in this portion of scripture do I see hope? Well, everywhere. These particular chapters have given me hope many times, including in my own miraculous pregnancy story. Every time I read these words of God given to us through Luke, I am filled with hope that God is always working behind the scenes, perfect in his timing and purpose, that God doesn't punish us when we fear or doubt or ask questions, but lovingly corrects us so that we can build our trust in him. God cares about and includes all kinds of people, men, women, young, old, priest, nobody, wealthy, poor. Each person has a place in his heart and story. And the word of God never fails. Indeed, there is nothing impossible for God. There's so much hope. Thanks so much for listening in to this first episode of the Connection Place podcast. I'd be so thrilled to hear your thoughts on Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 38. What do you think about all that took place? What are you learning as you read God's word? What thoughts or questions do you have? Please share them in the comments or send me an email at stephanie.smith.writer at gmail.com. See you next time.